Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED, or your travel advisor. Welcome to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears Magazine, with me, Edwin Smith. On the show, I speak to entrepreneurs, high net worth individuals, and their most trusted advisors to discover how the world of wealth really works. My guest for this episode is a leading lawyer, a renaissance man with a star-studded and sometimes controversial list of clients and opponents. He is ranked by Spears Magazine as one of the top 10 reputation lawyers in the land, but his practice covers everything from defamation to art and human rights. We spoke about the way he was tricked into becoming a lawyer by the manager of Pink Floyd, his view of Prince Andrew's media strategy, and why a former colleague of his would make an excellent Prime Minister. Mark Stevens, welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. I was going through a list of your greatest hits, as it were, your clients and your cases that you've had throughout your career, and it is pretty extraordinary. I just want to start by listing a few of them. You were retained by Helen Steele and David Morris in the so-called McLibel case against McDonald's, which became the longest-running court case in English history. You've worked with Julian Assange. Mike Tyson, James Hewitt. In 2018, you advised on what was thought to be the largest art market transaction of that year, a sale of 90 works by Picasso, which were bought by a single private client. Then in 2019, you took on Elon Musk after he referred in a tweet to the British cave diver Vernon Unsworth as a pedo guy. And you visited death row inmates in the United States as part of a campaign to end the death penalty. You've also campaigned for the abolition of laws against homosexuality that still exist in some Commonwealth countries and in parts of the Middle East you've had your phone hacked by the news of the world i thought being a lawyer was supposed to be boring oh no it's never boring well if you're intellectually curious like me then in those circumstances you just keep finding things which interest you and i've done a lot of cases which have been 
in the public eye. And part of that comes when you're dealing with either something which is very important, not just to the client, but also has a wider public interest, a legitimate public interest. And some of it comes where your clients are famous or infamous. And in those circumstances, obviously, as a lawyer, you have to do the best you can. But for me, I've always been really excited by finding new ways to innovate. So my approach is is very different to most lawyers. So most lawyers look at a problem, they'll tell you what the rules are, and they'll give you an answer. I look at what the solution is the client wants, and then work out how we manipulate the laws so that the client gets the outcome that they want. And it's a kind of more creative place. And one of the where the areas I've always been interested in is where the law is moving and where it's responding to contemporary social needs, for example. And it has done and it adapts over time. And my particular interest is to look at those kinds of things. And that's why I've done so many cases in the Supreme Court, not just here, but around the world, uh, and also international courts and tribunals as well. You began your career after being tricked into being a lawyer when you were sort of 17 or 18, I think, by Peter Barnes, the manager of Pink Floyd, who was then a lodger in your family home, I think. Yeah. It's, it's been a sort of roundabout journey from then, but can you tell us about those early days and how your career developed from those beginnings? I came from quite a poor family and my father was an artist, so we had money every three years when he had an exhibition and sold his work, but otherwise we were otherwise pretty impoverished, so we had a lodger, a series of them actually, and one of the more interesting ones was Peter. And uh, at that time, you know, I was acting, I'd been a, a child actor and I was at stage school and I'd been in the Royal Shakespeare Company for example but at that point as most teenage boys do I wanted to be in a rock and roll band and my parents really didn't think that that was the ideal way for me to expend my energies and so I came down for breakfast one morning and Peter and my dad were sitting there having coffee and he said "Uh, Mark what are you going to do? I said oh I'm going to go into the music industry and he said I think you should become a lawyer they make all the money I think and you know I can give you all of our work so I was thereby tricked by this ruse because, of course, uh, I now realise that the people who are making all the money in the music industry and certainly not the lawyers, they're the the hired hands. They're not the people making the, the serious bucks. But it was what set me on my path to become a lawyer. And I've always been interested in the sort of creatives area. So I was very interested in music and I was very interested in the cultural arts as well. So as a consequence of that, I've always been able to pick up some quite interesting work in those areas which feed my imagination. And at this point, when you were talking to Peter Barnes, were were Pink Floyd Pink Floyd, in inverted commas, by that point, or were they up and coming? They were in that transition from living in Earl's Court through to where they were. And um, in fact, we weren't rich enough to be able to go abroad on holiday. So Peter arranged for me to tour the US as a teenage lad as part of the road crew on the dark side of the moon tour. And I flew out to Los Angeles, met them there and came back 
across the US. And it was a, it was an amazing tour because it was in first in so many ways. So it was the first time that a band had hired a chartered a plane to fly from gig to gig. It was such a massive endeavor that there were two sets of equipment. So you know, one set of equipment was set up night one. We went on to night two and set up there. And then night one leapfrogged us to the third night and so on and so forth. So it was a really interesting way to see America as a young man. And it's also quite safe because, you know, I was the youngest person there and the whole team, it's kind of like a family and not with a band, of course, but uh, with the road crew. And they kind of look out for you. So, you know, a lot of them looked like long haired hippies. Uh, uh, They were much tougher than I think most of the rednecks we met. But I do remember one night where a redneck in the middle of America decided to pick on one of the road crew and he made a serious error of judgment. But one of the guys just plucked me out of the middle of this and parked me on the side (laughs) before he laid into the other guys. (laughs) And then I was picked up on the way out. It must have been an extraordinary, like the stuff of dreams to to experience that. that It's certainly a young man's dream. And, And, you know, I think if you offered most teenagers that opportunity, they'd snap it up. And, you know, it was great fun. It's a great foundation. But I think for me, it made me independent very early, much earlier than I think most people would, because I was traveling without my ordinary family. I was with the road crew. And, uh, you know, you have to rely on your own devices and you become more attuned to that kind of thing. So I think it caused me to grow up quickly. And now if we fast forward to the modern day, you've got a notably diverse practice. I mean, media, law, reputation, defamation, intellectual property, art, music, several other things as well, actually. But you've been building it up since the 1980s when you started what might actually be the best-named law firm ever, Stevens Innocent. This is good, isn't it? With, with <laughs> Rosalind Innocent. Now you're at Howard Kennedy. How do you divide your time at the moment across those various fields and types of work? I spend about eight months working for clients. Obviously, it's all intermingled, but it kind of breaks out. So I work for about eight, eight months, and I do pro bono work for about four months. So I have a number of things that I'm particularly interested in causes. The most recent one, of which I'm peculiarly proud, arose shortly before I became president of the Commonwealth Lawyers Association. So that's all the lawyers in the British Commonwealth. And I recognise the horrible injustice of gay folk being criminalised in about 70 countries at that time. And I made a submission to the Commonwealth law officers, uh, attorneys general and solicitors general at the meeting they have every year that actually international law required them to decriminalise consenting adult gay love. And I I made the presentation and the uh, Solicitor General from Singapore said, well, of course, we understand why Mr. Stevens is making this argument. It's because of his own peculiar proclivities. Uh, And that took a while to sink in. And I just looked at the uh, rapporteur from the Foreign Office and I said... uh, I think he just accused me of being gay. Uh, And, you know, one of the reasons for taking the case was that 
gay folk needed allies. Uh, gay folk would be criminalized if they brought these cases. So then some of the African states started lambing into me. Uh, and a very kind friend who was the attorney general in Mauritius at the time stood up and held the floor and said, look, Mark, we all understand what our obligations are in international law, but none of us would be re-elected if we went ahead and decriminalised. So if you choose to bring actions in our various countries based on international law and the judges find in your favour, then in those circumstances, we will reluctantly comply with the judge's order. And I suddenly a light bulb went on over my head and I thought, you know, there's an opportunity here for strategic litigation. And as a consequence of that, we're now working as an organisation called the Human Dignity Trust who've taken up the cudgels on this. But, you know, last year I took a case in Botswana and had consenting adult gay love declared inconsistent with the constitutional protections against discrimination. And I'm incredibly proud of that because obviously it has a massive impact on a huge number of people who can be who they were born to be. And, you know, my hope is that this is a kind of litigation which will come to an end. And I've always tried to bring that kind of moral compass to the work that I do, whether it's, you know, dealing with trusts uh, or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, one of the things I, I look at, for example, is Another case I'm on at the moment is working to restore the Parthenon marbles to the Parthenon. Of course, uh, because I'm acting for the government of Greece, I can't describe them as uh, the Elgin marbles because, of course, Lord Elgin stole them. They've sub subsequently been despoiled in the British Museum because they were, when they were acquired, still had their paint and colour on them and they were scrubbed clean by an art dealer, on the instructions of an art dealer called Duvine, because he wanted to see them white and pristine. So they've actually been severely damaged. And if you go to the Parthenon Museum in Athens, you will see the works still with their colour and patina, whereas the ones in London is sort of sparkling and brilliant white as a result of the application of elbow grease and brillo pads. And what's the Greek government's position on this? Do they merely want the marbles back? Is, or is there? Is yeah, I mean, essentially, the law is that if you've got stolen goods, you never get title to them. And, you know, what people don't realise is that even back when Elgin stole them, there was a huge scandal. There was a, an investigation, a select committee was set up in Parliament to investigate the theft of the marbles, because, of course, at that time, it was the time of the Grand Tour, and people were going to Greece, and there was nothing left for us to go and visit in, in, in Athens, or you were seeing a much lesser object in Athens. So it was a, a, a big problem, and in the end, he died ostracised from polite society, syphilitic with a tin nose where it had fallen or rotted off in Paris. And he was not at all acceptable in polite society because of his despoilation of that. It's a really important thing. And it 
follows through to the modern day. So very often I'm dealing uh, on behalf of ultra high net worth clients trying to acquire works of art. And of course, you've got to check that they haven't been looted at some point. There's often telltale signs in relation to works that were looted by the Nazis. And so, you know, we look for those kinds of signs to ensure that there's a clean title to the works of art, because there's nothing worse than having bought something. And I've had clients who have bought things ill-advisedly without t- checking. They just walk into an auction house or whatever and say, I like that, I love it, I'm going to have it. But then the title turns out to be uh, perhaps more fungible than would be desirable. And so as a consequence of that, uh, that's something that we spend a lot of time doing. And there's a bit of a moral compass engaged with that too. As you mentioned, you do a lot of work with UHNW's across the fields that your practice covers. You've just mentioned one thing that's become more prominent in the art world. Are there themes, are there types of work that are becoming particularly prominent at the moment in your practice? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are going on. So much of it focuses around reputation. A lot of my work is hidden from view because it's, you know, what the clients want is something done quietly and to fix problems in that way. But also sometimes you have to have the insight to understand when something could become a problem. So, for example, increasingly people are looking at supply chains and where people's wealth came from. And that's a very significant issue. And as a consequence of that, people's investments are going to come under scrutiny increasingly. And I see a lot of clients who are looking to get similar returns, but move to a more ethically based investment fund. So we work on advising about that. And it's far more complex because of the interlocking networks within supply chains and uh, and everything else. But it can be done. And, you know, we've got people who are moving to businesses which are ethical and, and have an ethical approach to earning. And as a consequence of that, I think, you know, people's reputations will be burnished. And, you know, there's some people who say, oh, what do I care about that? I just want the return. And that's fine, too. But, you know, those individuals are, and those companies particularly, are going to have a car crash at some point. So, you know, at the moment, if the Church of England invests in oil companies or nuclear, then they get a blowback. Individual shareholders won't at this point in time, but they are increasingly going to come under scrutiny, particularly where there's large shareholding. So I'm dealing with a lot of people who are invested in palm oil, for example, at the moment, and how they move out of a very profitable sector. But and we have found ways to check on the ethical nature. So some palm oil plantations go back into the mists of time, but some palm oil plantations are planted on what was virgin jungle and was cleared to with the aid of corruption in order to do it. And so you've got to be able to reassure the client that they're not going to get a blowback from the way in which their investments are scrutinised because people are now so ready to criticise perhaps appropriately or certainly to comment. And therefore, I think, you know, 
seeing which way the wind is going, understanding how that may impact on a person's reputation or a family's reputation is absolutely critical. And so we're doing a lot of work in, you know, preparing people and helping them through those kinds of moves. And of course, we work very closely with their trusted financial advisors. But this is a new area for them. They're not that experienced in screening on investments, particularly for ethical investments. And so as a consequence of that, I think we are uh, finding it. We're also helping businesses move. So we're seeing situations where companies are uh, being criticised for you know, there's a kind of throwaway, disposable, particularly clothing businesses, for example. And they need to move to a more sustainable approach, not only for society, but also for their own reputations, which will otherwise be criticised. And again, helping them with that process, because it's not something that you can switch on and off. It's an evolutionary process and understanding where both societal norms are going, but also where the world needs to be and where the criticism about ethical background and how you earn your money is going to come from. And, you know, we've seen the way in which some companies have been targeted over their sales of drugs, for example, and, you know, they they are no longer acceptable as sponsors for public art events. The Tate Gallery and the Serpentine have now got ethical screening on donations and things. So it's absolutely important if people who are ultra high net worths are going to continue to play the role that they do in society, their philanthropy and everything else, then they need to be thinking about how these changes will affect them. Absolutely. And yeah, we've seen blowback, as you say, against the Sackler family yeah. following uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, about the OxyContin scandal. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're seeing, you know, trusts where, which have been around for centuries, which were based on, you know, for example, goods imported from the Commonwealth in the 1700s, 1800s, having to change their name because those families had slaves. Whatever you think about that, and, you know, I think it's very difficult to go back and rewrite the past. What you can do is deal with the sins of the past in the present. I think changing names is a bit artificial, frankly, but a lot of people are doing that because they see if they don't, they're going to be criticised. I mean, I walked into my local church recently and there's a fabulous sculpture which has been there since the 1700s of the founder of the church, Josiah Child. Uh, but because he had slaves and he earned his money in the East India Company, the priest has put a, uh, a sheet over it so you can't see him and there's a little explanation on the side. I'm not sure that that kind of thing is really effective. And I think it's about, it's got to be about education and understanding of the past so that we don't repeat them in the future. But this idea, this broad idea of a new kind of scrutiny for the origin of people's wealth is you know, incredibly important at the moment. And it's, it's a spectrum as well, as well as having, to mix my metaphors, many areas of shades of grey. It's a spectrum from some... Long past investments, yeah, exactly. <laughs> some long past investments being, in the eyes of some people, a bit iffy. To the 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 major source of some people's wealth being the proceeds of criminal activity. I mean, do you do any work on 
unexplained wealth orders and, and that sort of thing. Do you have a view about their enforcement at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I do do work in that field. I mean, the point is that people today can't change where their wealth came from. And I think denying it is, or trying to obfuscate about it, is silly. I think you have to confront it, but then you have to demonstrate that you're different to your forebears, as we are all different to our forebears. Our moral and social constructs and standards and reference points have all fundamentally changed. And so I think a more appropriate discussion is around that kind of behaviour. And yeah, we do get to deal with unexplained wealth orders and all the rest of it. And I think they are appropriate, but they're not particularly zealous at the moment. There are clearly individuals who are probably publicly exposed persons primarily who they act for. So, you know, I've acted for a number of former heads of state or prime ministers and things like that, where allegations have been made that they've acquired their wealth illegally. Often that isn't the case. And usually there's a legitimate expectation. But Often these things are very mixed with politics. So in one country, they sent the new government who hated the old government sent their law enforcement team to London to try and have fraud actions brought against uh, the former premier. And I think, you know, it's that kind of thing where you can see the underlying political motivations that you need to see, call out and in many ways be prepared for. And a lot of the work we do is around that. And, you know, I think one of the key touchstones is that a lot of what we do has a sort of as a the glue that binds it, whether it's trusts, investments, where our wealth came from. But it's all about reputation. And if we get the unwanted calls from the media, if there is a degree of scrutiny, where's that going to come from? Are we prepared for it? And if we are, then we know exactly what we're going to do about it and what we're going to say. And usually people in that position are in a much better shape than folk who just let it happen. And we were talking earlier about the life of someone in your position who deals with ultra high net worth individuals. And that is a you know, common theme in the work that we do here at Spears. Advisors from different walks of life have very important clients and often not terribly many of them at one time. And so they become incredibly important. They are used to having service at their fingertips and getting exactly what they want when they need it. That must put demands on you to keep on providing the level of service they expect. I mean, are there instances where you've particularly gone above and beyond or where there have been impacts on your own personal life because of the demands that your job puts on you? I mean, anyone who works with ultra high net wealth is going to have to have their phone on 24-7. And I do. And, you know, I know that that's the level of service and expectation And if I'm based in London or sitting in London and they happen to be in Australia or somewhere else, I'm going to get calls in the middle of the night. And that's part of my job. I understand that. My job is to make their lives easy, to fix their problems, no matter what time of day or night they occur. I mean, the one thing I have is that because I don't have a tiny coterie of massive clients, I'm not economically dependent on any one. And that independence gives me a degree of 
ability to be able to speak truth to power. Very often people say they want things and very often they can get those things. But uh, the, the more direct route is fraught with more risk and explaining to them rather than just say, yes, 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 we'll do that. Actually explaining to them rationally why actually taking slightly longer to do it, doing it in a more nuanced way will benefit them. You can have that conversation. And yes, they don't like to hear it all the time. And, you know, clients are often angry. It doesn't much matter to me whether they take the advice or not. All I will do is always tell them honestly what the situation is. And I had one client who was the subject of uh, newspaper speculation about uh, his sexuality. And I said, look, people don't want to know about your sexuality. You know, you don't need to get involved in a lawsuit about it. He got very angry and went away and he spent 18 months suing a newspaper, but he had the grace to come back at the end of it. And he said, they set all sorts of people on me, trying to entrap me everywhere I went. I've had to live like a monk for the last 18 months. Um, I'll take your advice next time. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that happens, hopefully less painfully and less celibately. And are there times in your life of dealing with these UHNW clients that you've questioned whether it's, whether it's worth it? No, I, I don't, because it, whatever happens to them tends to be more impactful on them than it would in, you know, Joe Public. I mean, there's often a degree of scrutiny because of the profile or celebrity or notoriety of the individual, which means that everybody has an opinion. One of the things we look at is how things are emerging on social media, for example. Very often you can spot new trends emerging and front run them. And, you know, it's one of those areas where the sort of typical Spears reader needs to have an awareness of, about their life. They need to understand what the electronic footprints that they leave and others around them leave are going to look like and how those can come back. And, you know, I think we've moved beyond the generation where, you know, nobody is on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Many of the clients and particularly their family members and the children are all on social media. So there's always a risk. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. And I was going to ask you actually about your own social media presence, which I should say I've, I very much enjoy. And I think it might be unique among lawyers. It's sort of a mixture of quite serious loyally observations, but then the odd kind of amusing picture or, or lewd joke. I mean, is, it, <laughs> is, this, is this very thought through professional branding or is it, is it just... Uh... Well, it, I mean, my Twitter handle is at Mark's Larks for a, for a reason, which is it's, you know, partly me larking about and having fun. And one of the things that I try and do, one of my clients said, you know, you should always go to Mark because the first thing he'll do is laugh at your problem and then tell you about a case that was far, far worse and help you get it into perspective. And, you know, I do try to approach things with a an ear, ear of uh, careful, thoughtful process, but also to try and get it in perspective. You know, it, it isn't invariably the worst thing in the world. It can be pretty bad but it's not going to be the end of the world. So, you know, just getting that into perspective. And yes, I enjoy a laugh and a bit of humour, but I also, as you say, like to make serious points. So I think, you know, we've recently given some commentary about the very complex position of Prince Andrew, which I think the lawyers on both sides, who are pretty good, have played out about five more chess moves than the current media Twitterati and commentators are making. And I think, you know, being able to explain that to folk and why people are doing things now is informed by what they want the outcomes to be and foreseeing and showing those outcomes, I think, can be incredibly helpful in informing and understanding what's actually going on at the moment. Absolutely. I don't know how much we can get into that now, but I'd be interested to hear... I mean, what what could be the end game for Prince Andrew's advisors? Well, I think Prince Andrew wanted himself to speak. We saw that with the Emily Maitlis Newsnight interview. But he's in a no-win situation. If he speaks, he's condemned out of his own mouth, as he was in that interview. If he's silent, then he's damned by his own silence. And so there's no good outcome. The only outcome which is worse is that he has to go to a courtroom, whether a civil courtroom or a criminal courtroom, to explain what happened. That's even worse because then you get into the detail. You can't avoid the detail of what's going on. So his legal strategy, and I think it's the best that they can do in the circumstances, is basically to go dead in the water, not to do anything. He has no obligation to assist in the criminal investigation in America, and he's standing on those rights. He has no obligation to engage with the civil process in America. He also knows, and his lawyers know, that he's got a form of sovereign immunity, which is basically the sovereign, their spouse and their children of the full blood and their heirs are covered by sovereign immunity. And of course, now we understand diplomatic immunity, which 
is given precedence after that and derives from it. So prime ministers and ambassadors and high commissioners have that. So he's got immunity against both civil and criminal process in the United States and elsewhere. And so kind of it can only get worse if he cooperates. So the very smart lawyers for Virginia Jeffrey Roberts, the woman who's made the complaint, her very smart lawyers have worked all this out. And so they understand that the only way that they can haul him into a court and make him accountable is by piling on public opprobrium and making comments or that he can't hide behind high palace walls. Well, actually, he can. That's exactly what he can do. And the lawyers on both sides know know that. So I think that not passing moral judgment, but from a legal perspective, what he's doing is absolutely right. And it's really interesting, this whole issue of immunity, because increasingly people, particularly ultra high net worths, are acquiring diplomatic status. They're being appointed to roles and therefore obtaining immunity from everything that you can you can think about. And if you go to the UN library in New York, as I've done, the most used book in the entire library is on diplomatic immunity. And usually it's diplomats trying to avoid paying divorce bills or their children's school fees for their first wife. And so as a consequence of that, there are opportunities there, but there are, there's also likely going to be some public opprobrium if it comes out. So, you know, you've got to look at these things in the round. But, you know, back to Prince Andrew... His lawyers have managed to stall this case for five years. I think that they've probably got stalling for at least another decade before all the legal points are driven out. As a consequence of that, I think, you know, absent a decision by the Queen to instruct him to go to America, which I think is unlikely, and she would be doing that on the advice of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I don't see Prince Andrew going to a courtroom despite the flummery around and the sensational reporting that we're seeing at the moment. But things can change quite quickly if we think the, the Queen has had a long reign which may come to an end one day in the not-too-distant future the standing of the royal family in the public eye, both here and in America, could change quite radically. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that, uh, whilst the Queen might do, I mean, we have to remember, it's not the Queen's personal decision. This is going to be a decision that she takes on advice from the Prime Minister and the government, a cabinet decision, which is communicated by the Prime Minister. But I think the crisis talks which have been going on recently at Balmoral between Prince Andrew and his advisers uh, and the Queen are really around how much of an impact this is spilling over and having on the wider family. I mean, he is in the line of succession, but in his lifetime, he's dropped down it hugely uh, and is effectively out of line of succession. So the question is, how much does it actually impact on the new slim-down royal family? I think that'll be the question and the decision. And of course, you know, the Queen has already permitted him to step back from public duties. He's been shamed away from that effectively. And so the question is, where are the consequences here? And 
whilst there's always a desire, sort of tall poppy syndrome to get at the rich, the powerful, the famous, the reality is that the case against Prince Andrew in law is not as strong as many people seem to be assuming. The prosecutor is going to have to show not that he slept with Virginia Roberts, Jeffrey, because she was over the age of consent when that occurred, if it occurred. As a consequence, there's no offence committed there. It may say that there would be some moral condemnation, but it's not a criminal offence. And the issue then is he, as a consequence, Virginia Roberts and the prosecutors, the feds in America, if they're going to open a case against him, have to show that not only was she sexually trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell, but that Prince Andrew knew it. And it is far from clear that they can prove what Prince Andrew knew or didn't know. And uh, as a consequence of that, I think, you know, even if he were to stand trial, he's got a pretty good shout. The problem, of course, is, you know, reputationally, he can't even deploy the defence because there would be such moral problem around it. And that's why I come back to the conclusion that the advice, tough as it is, is to hang tough, is the right advice for Prince Andrew from a legal perspective. There will be some reputational damage on the side, but they'll do everything that they possibly can to uh, limit that and limit it to Andrew. Yeah, it's fascinating how the, the legal meshes with the sort of more messy public opinion angle. And we were speaking about social media and there's one particularly interesting case uh, in 2019, as I mentioned, when the cave diver Vernon Unsworth, who'd been deployed in a very honourable cause, was described perhaps unfairly by uh, Elon Musk as... Incorrectly. Incorrectly. Very incorrectly. As a pedo guy, Elon Musk emerged victorious from this case. But it was... It just goes to show how complicated and difficult social media makes the the public square. Yeah, and I think with that particular case, Elon Musk was successful in the end, I think because the jury misdirected themselves. I mean, in, in America, you get the opportunity to interview the jurors after the event. So, you know, our jury consultant was able to speak to some of them so we know what happened. And I think even Elon Musk accepts that he isn't a pedo and it was a false bill. He just says it was a rude comment in response to another rude comment and it would have been better off not suing in the first place. So, yeah, you do get those kinds of cases. But that was deeply uncomfortable and inappropriate for Elon Musk. I mean, the case got a lot of attention because Elon Musk was involved in it. And from his perspective, I cannot see how the value of his time was worth the amount of time he had to spend. He was in court for a week. He had to prepare with his lawyers for months beforehand. The amount of time he devoted to that, as opposed to earning money, 
is beyond credibility and why he didn't just gracefully say right at the beginning, look, I'm very sorry, I didn't mean literally that you were a pedo, I meant just to insult you and here's some uh, a modest amount of money and an apology to go away. That would have been, you know, the case wouldn't have been notorious, it wouldn't have been reported around the globe as it was and as a consequence of that, he'd have walked away. And I think, you know, obviously... His lawyers made a fortune out of him. He must have been billed millions for, for, for their services. But I'm not sure that either reputationally or otherwise, because now every time that Elon Musk is in the news, uh, I still get cuttings when they refer to pedo guy or, or the case, because I think there's a lot of moral opprobrium about how Musk conducted himself in that. And yes, he won the battle, but I don't think he's won the war. I think the reputational war he has has suffered quite a lot from over time. And the, the way that the legal framework that's growing up around social media is developing is is far from perfect. I think every, everyone agrees, but it's an interesting area because it's happening so quickly and it's so important. But when you look at Facebook and the review committee or what, whatever, the review board that they've yeah, recently instituted. The independent review board, yeah. Do you think that's a wise and good way to deal with the problems that they face? Yes, I think it is. I think Facebook could be applauded. There are really complex decisions that need to be made. And frankly, Facebook, even if they got 85% right, would be a very good average but it's still not, there's still going to be injustices. And so I think it is very wise to do that and also to follow the advice that's given. But there are also cases which are not apparent culturally to, I think, folk who live in California and are making these assessments. And very often, I do think that there's a very Western look at some of these cases and particularly around minority languages and things. So the way in which women are discussed in some societies is wholly inappropriate. It would be inappropriate in the West, but not unlawful. But it has much larger complex impacts on them. They may become unmarriageable, for example. In some parts of South America, to say that someone is dark-skinned is, is quite a serious insult because it meant that you were a worker in the fields. And so there's quite a lot of cases that you see come through where the insults are not readily apparent because they're culturally associative. And so I do think that it was a really good thing for Facebook to do. I hope others will join in. It's clearly the possibility that others can. I think the jury is out at the other big social media platforms to see if it works okay for Facebook, then they might all join in too. And I think that's how it's designed. So it could accept more people. But, you know, removing false digital information is something that has become a very big part of my team's work. So, you know, I had to deal with an onslaught on behalf of a Jewish client who the first article was written to, written the nicest article about him was written by an appalling man called David Duke, former member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I hadn't realised until I was doing this case just how interlinked all these 
ultra-extremist right-wing organisations are. And so that same story was then picked up and few false facts added to it in the first rendition and then picked up again and false facts added to that. And so it went on and on and on. And one of the challenges is getting that taken down. And of course, we now have the right to be forgotten, the right to delink things in search engines, which effectively forgets it. But one of the problems is if you leave it there, it becomes a self-serving truth and people will rely on that without fact-checking it. That is one of the areas that we're having to do a lot of work on. And I have to say that the social media companies are and platforms are getting better at having things removed and ensuring that they don't get put back up again. So just to give you an example, which I wasn't involved in, Max Mosley's video of the orgy in the basement has now been removed from the internet completely. Google and all the other search engines have basically taken a digital signature from that piece of information and it's, it's, it's kept at the gates so it can't be uploaded by someone who actually has it on their computer. So it's effectively been removed even though it was freely available, it was on the News of the World website when it came out and such like. So it can be done but it's a long and expensive process and we also quite often have to drive bad news stories down in the digital rankings and get the good news stories and the truthful representation of the clients into the uh, higher rankings. But again, that takes time, it takes diligence, it takes work. It's not an instant fix, unfortunately. With your representative for UH&W hat on and then also at other times your representative as a, a campaigner for charities and so forth, do you see a conflict between that kind of activity and the ability for certain people to control the, the media scape in in perhaps perhaps to a level that's that's undue or excessive no i don't think so i mean you know one of my clients buys newspapers around the world pimps them up and sells them on to oligarchs so that they can buy influence in the country that they happen to be most influential in that's a very common occurrence Uh, And there's some very reputable people doing it. And of course, you will get louder voices. But I think often folk who are not actually into owning media themselves do sometimes need to think about how they're going to be portrayed in their media. They need to understand what their potential vulnerabilities are and how they're going to deal with them. Often people don't like to deal with vulnerabilities, admission of a weakness, perhaps. We all understand that. But it's going to be so much worse if you just sit there and wait for the crisis. I mean, you know, that's when lawyers and advisors make all their money is fixing a crisis as opposed to solving a problem in advance. And as we've said, you've worked with an extraordinary cast of famous clients. You tend, understandably, not to talk about them, although I'd love to ask you about Julian Assange and and others. Private Eye noted that there were violent, that's their word, disagreements between his legal team and uh, Assange himself. But you can talk about people that you've worked with and you did work alongside a certain, not then sir, but now Sir Keir Starmer in the McLibel case. Did he strike you then as a prime minister in waiting? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think everybody that's known Keir well 
understood that he was always going to be in politics at the highest level. He is, I mean, people forget that he comes from a very humble origins, very poor background, and is entirely self-made. He is brilliant, he is thoughtful, he is incredibly hardworking, and he has a very strong moral compass. And I always found him really easy to work with. And we did a lot of cases together over the years because we think alike and our working styles are very complementary. And I think we changed a lot of things for the good. I mean, Keir, I didn't get involved in this, but Keir used to do a lot of pro bono work around abolition of the death penalty, particularly in the Caribbean. And he came up with the genius arguments to effectively have it rendered of no effect in the Supreme Court in London. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of thing. He is thoughtful. He is less ready with a soundbite. And he's also less ready to, frankly, not tell the truth than uh, our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. But I think he would be a refreshing change because he is thoughtful. He would represent our our country very well. And he's not somebody who has an out-and-out hostility to ultra-high net worth. People who may not see him as politically aligned don't really have something to fear from him in the way that they might have done from Jeremy Corbyn. I think, you know, as a consequence of that, he would be a very good leader. And looking round at all the major parties at the moment, there are not that many obvious candidates of real high calibre Uh, There are not many candidates who've actually run something big and complex like the director of public prosecutions he did. There's very few people that have dealt with really complex, intractable problems like he did when he was the parades commissioner in Northern Ireland, effectively umpiring between the Catholics and the Protestants at the height of the Troubles. And as a consequence of that, he has a a really firm track record for getting stuff done. He's not really bothered by what people say about him because he judges his performance himself by what he's able to achieve. And I think that is the most laudable outcome. I'm a great admirer. I'm obviously a, a friend. But I wouldn't be a friend and admirer if he wasn't the man that he really is. I think he will be essential for this country. We're coming out of the pandemic, we're in an economic crisis, and we need a firm, steady hand at the tiller. The sniff of corruption around the current government is not something which I think is going to ebb away anytime soon. And in Keir Starmer, you have someone who is uncorruptible. And I think that is going to appeal at some measure to the British public. And I think there's always a swing with these things. So you almost think of Peter Snow's swingometer. And at the moment, we've swung pretty far to the right, pretty far to the fast and loose. And I think there's going to be a hankering amongst the public to swing back to more old-fashioned political leadership where I think it's slightly more predictable and actually being done in the best interests of the public and not the individuals. Well, we'll watch it closely. Mark Stevens, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you, and I hope the readers of Spears really enjoy this. Thank you for listening to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears magazine, with me, Edwin Smith. Our producer was Adrian Bradley. Do subscribe to the show on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have a new episode for you next week. You can get the latest from Spears and subscribe to the magazine at spearswms.com. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.